the writer of Ecclesiastes is dealing with. And for much of it, he takes the premise, let's just say that this life is all there is. Then what does that mean for life and the way we live? So he's searching out what would it mean to live in this kind of a world? And in verse 1, he begins to now investigate another way to find meaning and satisfaction in a life that's disconnected from any thought of eternity. At the end of chapter 1, he developed the idea that uh, I'm going to search out a life of wisdom and knowledge, not eternal wisdom, but just practical wisdom in the here and now, and see if that satisfies. And he found out it did not satisfy. Now, chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was vanity. You see, the previous section saw Solomon look for the meaning of life in wisdom. Wisdom as it can be understood apart from eternity. And he found no wisdom. He found no, excuse me, not no wisdom, no meaning in skillful, wise living under the sun. Now he continues his search for meaning and instead focuses on a life filled with pleasure and amusement. I have to say that this is very relevant to our day and age. Do not many people today find, or at least attempt to find, I should say, the meaning of life in pleasure and amusement. That's just what life is all about. Having fun. Entertaining oneself. Solomon said, okay, I'm going to try that and see if I can find true meaning of life in that. And so he says, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. Solomon tested life's meaning with mirth and pleasure. He tested the theory that many, many people live under today. That again, the meaning of life is found in more and varied pleasures, entertainments, and excitements. But now at the end of verse 1, he tells you the result of it. But surely this also was vanity. Almost as soon as he raises the issue, maybe meaning for life can be found in happy, in mirth and laughter and excitement and entertainment. As soon as he raises the possibility, he smashes it down flat. Nope, it didn't work. Surely this also was vanity. And vanity has the idea of meaninglessness, emptiness. And so now he's going to describe more of the search after telling us the result. Verse 2, I said of laughter... Madness and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their life. So he evaluated it. And when he evaluated it, he said of laughter, madness. And of mirth, what does it accomplish? You see, Solomon tested the life lived for laughter and pleasure and fun. And like a modern celebrity, he went from party to party and entertainment to entertainment. But at the end of it all, he judged it all to be madness and without accomplishment. And I think anybody who's pursued that kind of life would give basically the same judgment. Oh, they wouldn't give it at first. Because at first there's just this exhilaration, there's this high, there's this activity. You keep busy enough, but but you immerse yourself in that kind of life long enough and, and you just take a serious look at the person in the mirror and you say, what am I doing with my life? Where is this going? What's the point of it all? 
And that's why he could say of this, I said of laughter, madness. And of mirth, what does it accomplish? And then he goes on. He says, I searched my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine and how to lay hold on folly. The, the, the preacher lived a life satiated with the pleasures of wine and light, frivolous amusements. He wanted to see what was good for the sons of men to do if this life is all there is. All right, I'll give it a try. I'll try all the sensation. I'll drink the best wines. I'll go to the best restaurants. I'll give myself the best experiences in this life and see if it really gives meaning to my life. I'm not talking about a fun diversion. I'm not talking about a pleasurable evening. What he's talking about is giving meaning to life. And so he describes the search further in verse 4. He says, I made my works great. I built myself houses. I planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which the water, the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. Now notice this, starting at verse 4, he he, he pursues a life of, of pleasure and entertainment, but with a different spin on it. He says, I made my works great. You see, he looked for meaning not only in amusements, but also in great and legitimate accomplishments. He tried to give his life meaning through the satisfaction that comes through building and organizing and improving one's environment. It's as almost as he said, okay, look, I tried the pleasure thing. I tried the wine. I tried the fun. I tried the mer- Okay, I knew it wasn't there. That was vanity. It was meaningless. But, but maybe this solution is hard work. It's accomplishment. And so, boy, he set himself to hard work. Did you understand the description that I just read to you? Gardens and orchards, male and female servants, herds and flocks, silver and gold. He acquired them. He organized them. It was all a finely tuned, well-running machine. Well done, Solomon. You're a great administrator. You're a great organizer. You're a great leader of men. You've got all these resources and you're steward over them well. And he looks at it and he says, if this life is all there is, it's meaningless. It's empty. You see... All those riches and accomplishments could not give true meaning to his life. If they could have, the preacher would have found it. And so the analysis from the search begins now at verse 9. He says, So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and on the labor in which I had toiled. And indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Solomon's accomplishments rightly lifted him to prominence. I I like what he says there in verse 9. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. It it didn't make me crazy. I I was still able to analyze things, at least in an under-the-sun kind of way. I think there's sort of something interesting in verse 9, if you noticed it. 
Solomon became famous. I became great. Isn't that what a lot of people think will give meaning to their life, right? Isn't that a common way of thinking today? If I could be famous, how about this? If I could be on television, oh, that would give my life meaning, right? And you find some twisted individuals today who are more than happy to humiliate themselves, to to publicly disgrace their own lives and the lives of others, to, to even commit crimes just for the sake of making a name for themselves. So that people will say, well, at least I was famous, that man or that woman could say. Listen, there's something very twisted in that. And Solomon explored it. Friends, if fame alone could give meaning to life, Solomon would have known it. But in his under-the-sun world, he realized how empty and how vain it was. And then he continued on there in verse 10, where where he says, well, of course, his wisdom remained with him. But but he went on to say in verse 10, well, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I, I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure. Listen, when Solomon says that, that means something, right? Now, it'd be one thing if, you know, somebody among us said, I bought everything I wanted. And we'd know, oh, you know, we're fairly humble people buying everything we wanted. That's, you know, it's, what do you mean, a trip to the supermarket or something? Solomon, with the resources that man had at his disposal? Listen, if there was any way just to search it all out and to say, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold from them any pleasure. As I said before, it's even more significant coming from Solomon, who had the resources to grant whatever his eyes desired, every pleasure of his heart. Solomon, you know how it was in his kingdom. I want that woman. It was brought to him. She became one of his concubines. I want that field. He bought it and paid double the price, and the man was happy to have the money. I want this. I want that. Whatever he wanted, it was brought to him. He didn't have to say no to himself on anything. Surely that will give meaning to my life. And even he found the good result of having a heart satisfied in labor. Did you see that? At the end of verse 10, he says, And this was my reward from all my labor. But then he says, We might say that, uh, excuse me, going on, he says, for my heart rejoiced in all labor. You might say that the preacher lived this period as a hedonist, but he lived it as an intelligent one. He looked for the legitimate pleasures of life, such as the rightful pleasure one takes in the accomplishments of hard work. I mean, the way I work it in my mind is that Solomon lived a life, uh, somewhat of a debauched life, right? An immoral life, you might say, uh, looking for satisfaction in immoral pleasures. But he was wise enough to know that the answers weren't there, and he probably figured that out pretty fast, right? Uh, okay, that's meaningless. That's not going to be the answer. But then he thought, ooh, good hard work and accomplishment. That seems to make men and women happy. And so he tried that. But then he said his heart rejoiced in all his labor. He found reward from all his labor. But look at the the, uh, the verdict right there at the end of verse 11. And indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Now, please, I'm going to remind you again of that important phrase, under the sun. I worked really hard. 
But, but because the parameters of my world say that this life is all there is, it didn't accomplish anything. Now, you might question this. You, you might say, listen, Solomon, didn't you feel good because you built that building or you made that bridge or you planted that orchard or whatever it was? Didn't that give you some satisfaction? And in the following section, he's going to explain to us why even those good and legitimate pleasures of life ultimately had no meaning in an under-the-sun world. He'll explain it very plainly. Notice this. The answer to why they have no meaning is because you die. Right? Congratulations, Mr. Man or Woman of Accomplishment. You die and you don't take any of it with you. You're gone. In an under-the-sun premise, this life is all there is. So now that very painful proposition he begins to discuss in verse 12. Then I turn myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what is already done. Then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The, the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet my, I myself perceive that the same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, so it also happens to me. And why then was I more wise? I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For if there's no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever... Since all is now will be forgotten in the days to come. How does a wise man die? As the fool. Therefore I hated life. Because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. For all is vanity and grasping for the wind. He says there very powerfully in verse 12. That he turned himself to consider wisdom and madness and folly. He, he, he continued to search after the meaning of life and he followed the lines of wisdom. He followed the lines of madness. He followed the lines of folly further up until their ending point. And then he thought about the end of all things. So he said, what can the man do who succeeds the king? I think if he spoke of himself right there, I mean, in verse 12, what can the man do who succeeds the king? Solomon was a man who succeeded a king, right? His father, David. But, but he also thought of the man who would succeed him. Hey, my father died. I'm going to die. Uh, my son's going to die. Uh, death is there. And even for a king, there's nothing new under the sun. And then he says it very powerfully there. Verse 13. I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Okay, great. It's better to be wise than it is to be foolish, right? Should we take a show of hands on this, right? What's better, wisdom or foolishness? Right, I think we understand that. Okay, Solomon, we got the point. But then notice he's going to deliver the hammer blow at the end of verse 14. Yet I myself perceived that the same event happens to them all. Do you know what the same event is? Death. You die. And in an under-the-sun world, with an under-the-sun premise, if this life is all there is, if your body goes into the grave and rots and that all there is, then you know what? Everything you accomplished means nothing. You say, well, no, no, it means something for my children. Well, he'll talk about that in a minute. Friends, in an under-the-sun world, death makes all things meaningless. 
The, the, the preacher saw the meaninglessness of even wise living, of legitimate pleasures, and of accomplishment lived in a life under the sun, apart from the knowledge of eternity and of a God who really matters. You see, no matter how wise one is or is not, no matter how much they do or do not accomplish, no, much, no matter how much pleasure one has or does not have, the same event happens to them all. They all die. And given the preacher's premise that eternity and God do not ultimately matter, this is the only possible conclusion. And you can see how it tortures them. Look at what he says in verse 15. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why then was I more wise? Well, congratulations. I'll be the wisest man to have his life mean nothing and have it destroyed when I die. What, did they give you some kind of ribbon for that? But who cares? I'm gone. It's meaningless. If death ends it all, then this life is robbed of true meaning. And even the good and great accomplishments of the world are unbelievably temporary and therefore ultimately meaningless. The wise man dies just as the fool. And truly the preacher looked at this and at the end of verse 15, he says, this also is vanity. And then you saw it very there very powerfully in verse 17, where he says, therefore I hated life for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Now again, given his premise of life under the sun, Solomon hated life because it was so meaningless. It was vanity. It was grasping for the wind. You can picture that, can't you? Somebody trying to grab the wind. How's that working out for you? You can't do it, can you? It's meaningless. It has no purpose. Like what Derek Kidner said about this phrase, therefore I hated life. He said this, if there is a lie at the center of existence, and nonsense at the end of it, who has the heart to make anything of it? Another thing Derek Kidner says here, he says, the, 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 Psalm, excuse me, the, the Solomon here, the, the preacher, he has no illusions about it. He knows it all ends. And then meditating on it even further, he saw that it was even worse than he thought. Verse 18. Then I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun because I must leave it to the man who will come after me, right? I'll leave it to my kids. That's a solution. That'll give my life meaning. Look at the next line. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he will rule over all my labor in which I've toiled, in which I've shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Therefore, I turned my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I had toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what has man for all his labor and all the striving of his heart with which he has toiled under the sun? For all his days are sorrowful and his work burdensome. Even in the night his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. You see, not only did Solomon hate life under this thinking, he hated even the accomplishments of his life. He said, I hated all my labor. He said of all of them, this is vanity. 
You see, the idea that Solomon might leave all of his work and all of his material wealth to a fool seemed to trouble him. And can I say something? That concern was well-founded because he left all of it to his son, Rehoboam. By the way, just a little throwaway line here. Did you know that Solomon, even though he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, he had one son that we know of, one heir, and he was a fool. His name was Rehoboam. And you can just imagine Solomon. I don't know if he could see it when he wrote Ecclesiastes or he just thought about the possibility of it, but it drove him crazy. Look at all I've accomplished and I got to leave it to him. Truly, it's meaningless. Rehoboam turned out to be a fool in many ways. And it drove him crazy. He says, there's a man whose labor is with wisdom and knowledge and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. Under his premise, life under the sun, death haunted Solomon. Not in the sense that he was afraid to die, but that he despaired of how death If death ends our existence, how it makes all meaningless. Therefore, he goes so far to say that all his days are sorrowful, his work burdensome, even in the night his heart takes no rest. If death robs all of our work of meaning, then life indeed is sorrowful, work is burdensome, and there's no rest or relief from the despair of a meaningless life. Surely also it is vanity. Could I say this? It's actually worse than vanity. The preacher observed that in an under-the-sun world, it's also evil. This is a great evil, he says at the end of verse 21. It's worse than vanity. Now, in dealing with all this, I hope there's nobody here too depressed by all of this, even though, boy, this is tough stuff, isn't it? But in this, the preacher hints at a vital question. Why does this bother us? Really? Listen, let's just step into an under-the-sun world for a minute, right? In an under-the-sun world, let's say you believe in in, uh, uh, materialistic evolution, that, that, that God has nothing to do with creation, that we're just here by by fortunate circumstances and all the rest of it. That there's no meaning to life or existence. And when you die, brother, sister, you're dead. That's it. Let's enter into that kind of world just for a moment. Why does that bother us? If that's how it's been since millions or billions of years, and that's where we are right now, it should be so programmed into us that it shouldn't bother us just for a moment. If every thought of an internal meaning to life is a wish and a fantasy, then why does that idea, the idea that there is no eternity, that there is no life after this, why does it cause discontent in most everyone? You know, a man or a woman may wish that they could fly like a bird. I kind of wish that. That'd be cool, right? Yeah, well, man, they flap your arms. Woo, I can fly. Wouldn't that be great? I'd love that. But there is very little sense of meaninglessness in the heart or, of, of a, in the, or the mind of a man or a woman because they cannot fly like a bird. Nobody walks around saying, my life is meaningless because I can't fly like a bird. 
But listen, there's something deep in the soul of a man or a woman that says, if this life is all there is, then it is meaningless. Now, what's the difference between the two? I'll tell you the difference between the two. You were never designed to fly like a bird in an airplane, fine. You were never designed to fly like a bird. You were designed for eternity. And the thought that there is no eternity, that life has no ultimate meaning, it bothers us. I don't think it bothers your, your dog or your cat. Certainly doesn't bother your goldfish. But it bothers us. Why? Because we are engineered for eternity. Man was not designed to fly like a bird, but he is designed for eternity. And that's why it bothers. Well, why wouldn't Solomon write? And you know that Solomon's speaking the truth here. He's resonating with their own hearts. He says, you know, why doesn't he just say, yeah, whatever. Okay, I die. Who cares? We all do. Say la vie. He doesn't say that, does he? It bothers him deeply and it bothers us. Now, verse 25, he sort of shifts gears, excuse me, verse 24, I should say. He shifts gear just a little bit. He, here, now he's going to talk about how we should live life under the sun. Follow his thinking here. He says, nothing is better for a man that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? You see, the thought is prominent in Ecclesiastes. This idea that we find in verse 24, hey man, just eat and drink and enjoy life. That thought is repeated something like five times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It seems that the preacher is advising us how to make the best of a bad situation. Saying, listen guys, okay, ring the bell. Life is meaningless. We're living life under the sun. It is meaningless. So make the best of a bad thing. Eat and drink and enjoy your life. But, but don't even hope for meaning. Don't even hope for real purpose. You see, if life really as despairing and as meaningless as he has shown it to be, then we should simply accept that true meaning is impossible to find and simply find contentment in moderate and responsible pleasures. And by the way, isn't this thinking prominent in our day? Few people live for true eternal meaning with their life. That they live in the under the sun kind of rules. And so they try to work hard, enjoy life, have fun, be nice. If you do bad things, don't get caught and try not to hurt anybody. That's the basic code people live by today. Now listen, I'll be the first one to agree. This thinking may work in making a bad situation better, but it gives no true meaning to life in light of eternity. And that's why he can even say there in verse 25, this also I saw was from the hand of God. See, here we see that the preacher's no atheist. He certainly believes in God, but the God of the preacher, at least under his under-the-sun premise, the God of the preacher is not the God who matters. He's not the God who gives meaning to life as he's connected in eternity. Maybe he's the grandfatherly old God with the big beard and the rocking chair up in heaven, right? Oh, there's a God, but he doesn't really matter. The, the God of the preacher simply teaches us to make the best of a bad situation. And so he really collapses down into fatalism. 
I like what G. Campbell Morgan said about this. He said, everything is vanity. To live under the sun is to decide that the la- to decide at last that the natural thing to do is to just take what comes. Materialism necessarily becomes fatalism. And Solomon says, well, I can do that. For who can eat and drink and who can have enjoyment more than I? Given the preacher's premise, his life should be the best in a meaningless world. He could enjoy this world of despair better than anyone else. Yet his life was almost infinitely more poor than the most humble life lived with true meaning. You know, you'll meet people. I'll speak honestly. Maybe you are one of those people. By human observation, on the on the under the sun kind of scale, you got everything, you got it all. But if you're not living your life for eternal meaning, your life has no meaning. The words of the preacher resonate with your heart in the book of Ecclesiastes. I'll say this to you, sir or ma'am, who seems to have everything and under the sun kind of rules. You are almost infinitely poorer than the most simple man or woman who has true eternal meaning to their life. And if you were wise, you would do everything you could to believe in the God of the Bible and the eternity that is to come and to realize that your life, your deeds, your aspirations will be judged in light of eternity. And then here in verse 26, he he almost gives a, a throwaway line. He says, For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who's good in his sight. But to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting, that he may give to him who's good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. You see, Solomon reflected on how sometimes it seems... That what the sinner has gathered and collected is given to him who is good before God. Now that might seem unjust, but under the sun, sometimes injustice seems to work in someone's favor. So he says, okay, great. This is also vanity and grasping for the wind. Even this seeming or sometimes redistribution from God's hand was not enough to give true meaning to life lived under the sun. So we leave chapter 2 on this very downbeat note. We come into chapter 3 and to see him sort of discussing another idea in this premise. Verse 1. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones. A time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. A time to gain, a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. It's a beautiful section, isn't it? Of course, you can't really say those lines without thinking of that great bird song running through your mind, right? You can hear the guitar riff even as I'm mentioning that. 
Listen, to everything there is a season and a purpose, a time for every purpose under heaven. This list that describes the different seasons and facets of life, it's a beautiful list and it's very beautifully written, is it not? Yet it also casts a very dark shadow because it reminds us of the inevitability of trouble and evil and of the relentless monotony of life. You see, the repetition of a time and a time and a time. After a while, it almost seems oppressive to us. I like what Derek Kidner said about this. He says, whatever may be our skill and our initiative, our real masters seem to be these unstoppable seasons. Not only those of the calendar, but, but of that tide of events which moves us from one now to one kind of action which seems to be fitting and another which puts it all into reverse. And put it this way, do you ever feel like you're a slave to the calendar? So don't even raise your hand on that one. Right? It's a terrible feeling, isn't it? Sometimes it doesn't make you feel more that life is meaningless. When you really feel like you're a slave to the calendar, that one day passes, the, the events just, you're in, you're under dominion of time and the events, and this comes and that comes, you got no control over it all. You're just in bondage to this. That's how we felt. And even though it's, it's beautifully said, so beautifully that when the birds did that song, turn, 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 they didn't write it. Pete Seeger wrote it. But when they did that song, you know, it became a number one. Did you know Solomon had a number one hit in the U.S.? <laughs> I hope they gave him the songwriting credit for that, but I don't think they did. Notice how it begins this list in verse 2. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to break down, a time to build up birth and death. These are the boundaries of life under the sun. So that's mentioned first. And in this whole list, a bad facet answers each good facet. Yeah, there's good things like birth, but then there's bad things like death. There's good things like building up. There's bad things like breaking down. The preacher understood that even though there are good things in life, the bad things can't be escaped. They say that in ancient Egypt, when they were having a party, when they were having a feast, a banquet, that they would pass around a little coffin, a little, you know, toy, almost coffin to everybody in the midst of the party, basically to say to everybody, hey, you're having a good time now, but you're going to die. I don't know if that's a great way to run a party or not, but it sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? Yeah, you, you know, you, you, you may be having a good day, a good week, a good occur, occurrence, beautiful. But d- don't ever forget that good thing in the life, that, that, that birth of the child, it's going to be offset by a death somewhere. That, 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 that beautiful planting of something, something else is going to get plucked up. That, that, that embrace is going to be coupled to a refraining from embracing. You get the point. Over and over again. What I like about the poetic quality of this list, the beauty in this list, is it shows us that even the tragic, dark aspects of life can be artistically and powerfully presented. I see that in a lot of the art of this world. A lot of the music, a lot of the film, a lot of the novels, a lot of the writing. I find that oftentimes people who who don't know God at all can very artfully and sometimes beautifully describe the lost condition of mankind. What they can't tell you is the solutions. But man, if you want the problem, the world can tell it to you. 
Because they see it. They know it, just like Solomon ached because of it. Now, in verse 9, we have something. I don't want you to get too excited about this. But in verse 9, we see a glimmer of hope. Enjoy it, because you're not going to get much of this until the end of the book. But just for a moment, Solomon lifts his eyes up to eternity. See what I mean? Verse 9. What profit has the worker from that which he labors? I've seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He has also put eternity in their hearts. Except that no man can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. First in verse 9, he asks the question, What profit has the worker from that which he labors? I've seen the God-given task which the sons of men are to be occupied. The preacher asked the kind of question he had asked before, but this time he found an answer. The God-given task that God gives to man. All right there, that's meaning for your life, isn't it? If you believed that God mattered and he actually gave you a task to do in this world, that changes everything, doesn't it? Suddenly your life isn't meaningless. Suddenly your life has a purpose. God gave me something to do. And I'm going to do it unto his glory. And then he says next that he's made everything beautiful in its time. And this is consideration of the poetic list in the previous section. Solomon thought of the good and the bad as they were described. And he says, listen, God makes it all beautiful in its time. But then he says something glorious in verse 11. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts. The preacher understood that man has an awareness and a longing for the eternal and that God has put it in their hearts. We can say that eternity is in our hearts because we are made in the image of an eternal God. Isn't that beautiful? Friends, he's programmed you this way. One of the fascinating things from this is the well-known missionary and author Don Richardson used that phrase, eternity in their hearts, to write a book by that same title, Eternity in Their Hearts. If you've never read it, I highly recommend it. He talks about his work among aboriginal tribes in different places in the world and how he found that when he did a little bit of research in the culture and in the thinking and in the mentality of those tribes, he would find connections to biblical truth. They would have a story or a legend or a tradition about a God who gave his son to help people. They would have this tradition or that tradition. And so often he could connect back. And Richardson says it's because God has put eternity in their hearts. It's something that God has put in all of our hearts. Except, he says at the end of verse 11, that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. Though God has given man a longing for and an awareness of eternity, God has not revealed very much about his eternal work. This keeps the yearning for eternity alive in the heart of man as a yet-to-be-fulfilled longing. Now, this phenomenon that Solomon speaks of, this phenomenon of eternity being in our hearts, I mean, I think we would just agree that it's true, right? I mean, this is just, it's true by observation, not only by Solomon's declaration. And I I wonder, how, how can, how can evolution explain such a thing? Right? It's just beyond explanation in any natural way. 
But it's beautifully explained if we are indeed made in the image of an eternal God. Verse 12. I know that nothing is better than for them to rejoice and to do good in their lives and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. You see, in light of God's making everything beautiful and His gift of eternity in their hearts, then it's wise to receive the good things of this world and to receive them as the gift of God. Okay, knowing that my labor has meaning because God gave me work to do, knowing that God has put eternity to my heart, and that must mean there is an eternity, then I can enjoy the good things of this world. And I'm not looking to them to give my life meaning. No, I already have meaning in my life from God. Now I can enjoy those things legitimately and wonderfully. This is what he says in verse 12. I know this. But now in verse 14, he knows something else. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him that which has already been and what has already has been. And God requires an account of what is past. Oh, don't miss that last line. He's finding meaning. He's considered eternity. He's considered the work that God has given to every man. And then he says so wonderfully there at the end of verse 15, God requires an account for what is past. Friends, If God requires an account from you and me, then everything we do has meaning. Not nothing. Under the sun, nothing has meaning. Under eternity and the fact that we will give account before God for what we do, everything has meaning. I think most of us fail to appreciate how meaningful and significant our lives really are. I think you may be thinking that way. You may have been basically told the lie. You believe the PR from an under-the-sun world that your life isn't very significant, that your life doesn't have much meaning. Maybe you believe that. Friends, I'll tell you, there's two people who really disagree with you. Number one, God really disagrees with you. Secondly, the devil really disagrees with you. He knows your life has meaning, and that's why he doesn't want you to think that it has meaning. Because the meaning of your life scares the devil and his agents. Oh, he'd love you to go on thinking that it doesn't have much meaning. But no, he understands this. Excuse me, the, the, the Solomon understands it. That God requires an account of what is past. Now, verse 16. We're, we're kind of stepping back into depression again here in verse 16. And you'll tip it off right there. Look at verse 16. Moreover, I saw... Under the sun, right? Here we are back to an under the sun world, right? Moreover, I saw under the sun, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and every work. Again, he's battling back and forth between despair and understanding things in the light of eternity. Solomon looked at the world, the here and now, apart from considering eternity, and he saw that there was great evil and injustice. Instead of fair judgment, so often many times people find wickedness. And instead of righteousness, so many times people find iniquity. And this is a very significant problem under the sun. If man does not have to reckon with eternity... If this life is all there is, then many of the wicked and evil people win. Is that not true? 
If this life is it, if death ends it all, then do not many wicked and evil people actually win in this world. And, correspondingly, many good and righteous people lose. Let's face it, friends. The idea of karma, karma, I should say, does not consistently work, at least not in this life. That's why Hindus who believe in karma, they got to tack on reincarnation lives, right? Because they recognize it don't really work in this life. If this life is all there is, karma doesn't really work too good. Because a lot of unjust, wicked people who seem to come out just fine, right? And there's a lot of good, godly people who, who end up getting trampled over. If that's not set right somewhere, sometime, then it's very troublesome. That's why Solomon finds some relief there in verse 17, where he said in his heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. The the, the preacher said, but perhaps he hoped that he knew that God would judge the righteous and the wicked. And not only in this life, because there is a time for every purpose and for every work, God will judge the deeds of man to see if it fits the proper purpose and the proper work. Now, he, he flirted with discouragement and despair in verses 16 and 17. He kind of rallied a little bit at the end of verse 17. Uh, Verse 18, we're plunged back into darkness here. Here he goes. I said in my heart, concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to the animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animals, for all is vanity. All will go to one place. All are from the dust, and all return to the dust. Who knows what the spirit of the sons of man, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes to the earth. Concerning the condition of the sons of men, he says, they themselves are like animals. Now, he's not talking about people living like animals. You know what he's talking about? People dying like animals. Solomon compared life between humans and animals, and he also compared their deaths, doing so under the sun, absent eternity terms. And so on this basis, he could say that there's very little difference from the life and the destiny between humans and animals, as he says very powerfully, as one dies, so dies the other. The the, the preacher thought of an animal dying and its body decomposing. And then he thought that by all outward appearance, the same happens to a human body. Therefore, they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over the animals, for all is vanity. The the, the distinction between man and animals, death cancels it out. I like what one commentator named Dean said. He said, man's boasted superiority, his power of conceiving and planning, his greatness, his skill, his strength, his cunning, all come under the category of vanity, for they cannot ward off the inevitable blow of death. There you go, Mr. and Mrs. Smarty Pants. You've achieved a lot. You've done it all, right? In an under-the-sun world, you die and your body rots just like that of a horse. That's it. That's what it's like in an under-the-sun world. But he has a different idea here in verse 22. So I perceived that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after? Again, this is the same basic idea that we've seen before. 
making the best of a bad situation. It's true that Solomon perceived this, but he did so on the faulty assumptions of under-the-sun thinking. And he said, nothing is better that a man should rejoice in his own works. After briefly flirting with the confidence in eternity earlier in this chapter, the preacher's return to his under-the-sun thinking and under this premise, nothing is better than for a man to accomplish what he can in this world and to try the best he can to not trouble himself to what will happen after him. Don't think about it. You see, in this under-the-sun thinking, Solomon had an answer for the question, what will happen after him? And the answer is nothing. Under the sun, what happens after you? Nothing, because death ends it all, and ultimately this life has no more significance than the life of that of an animal. Well, I have to say that this is a very depressing point to leave our text at. And I have no greater light for you next week. We plunge into the darkness even greater. But listen, I want to compare a couple passages just as we walk out on this. Solomon's right in an under-the-sun world with that given premise. But I thank my Savior, Jesus Christ, that we don't live under the sun. That we live under the more glorious sun of eternity. That we live under the bright, we live under the bright and morning star, Jesus Christ our Lord. Remember what he said back in chapter 2, verses 20 and 22? He said, I turned my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I toiled under the sun. For what has man for all of his labor and all the striving of his heart with all that he's toiled under the sun? What good is it to work so hard and accomplish anything if death robs it all? Compare that with this passage from 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That's life under the bright and morning star. And it makes us what? It makes us steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Friends, when you see the contrast, we've seen a black velvet background here. On that black velvet, I've just set a beautiful diamond there for you to consider. The person and the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. He, the bright morning star, gives meaning to our life. But let's just receive that from him and accept it together. Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you that the brilliance of who Jesus is and what he's done, it stands out all the more brightly when we set it against the, the black background of a life lived without consideration of eternity. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that we're not trapped under the tyranny of time, but that you've given us to live under the light and glory of eternity. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would impress these sometimes hard-to-hear truths upon our heart so that we would know how to minister to a world, how to serve a world that lives their lives so often under the sun. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The table for communion is open. 
I'm come. 